Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tales from Told. I'm Dwayne Davidson, your host, and I'm here with a special guest, my my own dad, uh, for another episode. And uh, my father has been a guest on this program a couple of times. We've talked about uh, the camp that used to be outside of uh, Carnation. Um, and we also uh, have talked about his book on uh, occasions that we, we did an episode about early telephone service in the valley and now we're going to be here talking about uh, an important uh, recreational social activity that took place in in uh, yesteryear of uh, of carnation tolt and that's about steelhead fishing and so welcome dad thank you so hey dad i wanted to do this uh, because you know Steelhead was pretty important um, activity uh, to, uh, like I said, for the uh, add both a social aspect and just pure recreational aspect of uh, uh, especially important uh, in years past. I remember reading, there's a book that has some various oral histories on it that's published about carnation. It was done by a gentleman by the name of Jerry Matter. And I was reading the other day, the piece that he did on, uh, on uh, Miller, uh, of Miller's Drag Goods, and uh, Howard Miller. And I thought it was kind of interesting that Howard said in his interview that when he moved to Carnation, he felt like such an outsider. And it wasn't because he was the only Jewish guy that he knew in Carnation, it's because he didn't know how to fish. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of a funny thing. He said, everybody, everybody fished in Carnation in those days. I know that you did. I did. I was brought up in a very steelhead family with uh, my uncles and my own father and grandfather all out on the river all the time. And of course, steelhead became a very important uh, uh, activity of mine. I was nearly addicted to it for a while. And we don't see that as much as we did in the past, dwindling fish populations and uh, fish runs and other factors probably are attributable to some of that and also so many residences on the river but um dad i wanted to talk and kind of brief people that didn't don't know about this um uh, about steelheading about what it was and how it really manifested itself into the social life of carnation back then in a thing they call the sportsman club and so we'll talk a little bit about that today too but first of all to educate people that may not know steelheading uh they're basically in some ways you could you, you could boil down that there was two different ways you could still head if and correct me if you you think i'm wrong on any of this there was basically plunking and drifting wasn't that isn't that the case yes um <clears throat> yeah Dwayne, you could um either plunk or drift and the drift boats, that'll come later on, quite a bit later. But on the steelhead, there's actually 
two runs and they're completely separate fish. Uh, we had our winter run that would always come Christmas week, between Christmas and New Year's. And with the five brothers and my dad, we uh, were allowed uh, three apiece per day. So we'd go out and get our winter steelhead and mom would can them and we'd smoke them and it was a big deal and part of the family's staples for coming years. But the summer run, it was more of a, a sport where you'd you know, not have to wear heavy clothes and could go down and fish late evenings right up to dark and catch a summer run. And they were smaller, 8, 10, 12 pounds and uh, good barbecue and like that. But so it was actually when we say steelhead. There's really two, winter run and summer run. I'm glad you pointed that out. And they actually, you fished for them somewhat differently too, because they actually uh, took a different uh, a bait, I know, that they would, um, uh, there were different fish, different, uh, and they came from different conditions when they migrated up into the river. And so they, uh, different things attracted them. Like the summer run was, uh, uh, the lures that you use and the type of bait that you use, whether it be egg roll or um, uh, uh, um, or others, uh, other things, is um, like ghost shrimp. Depend upon what run you were fishing for, correct? We used to fish with spoons too that just called wobbler, and in fact, Dad had a mold for making them. Uh, and, uh, oh, you've seen them on the cards and whatnot since, but uh, Dad used to make them. And uh, the steelhead, they'd hit them. They were more ticked off at it than anything, I think. Yeah. Uh, you'd put it through where they were old up. <clears throat> but the funny thing about both of them, both runs, they could uh, spawn and return to salt water. Not like a salmon where they die. And uh, old native, you could have a three-year fish up to 25, 30 pounds. You right. know. And that uh, was the difference in between the salmon and the steelhead. The steelhead could spawn more than once. But now, uh, go ahead. Now, now the so the winter run was the larger run, of course. It was a larger fish, and the conditions were colder, but more people fished for the winter run uh, than uh, with the summer run. And the winter run, especially, yeah. there was really two different methods of fishing. There was the drift fishing and the plunking. And uh, you want to describe a little bit so that people that are not familiar with this at all, what does that mean? Well, when you're drift fishing. You'd just uh, go to the head of the hole, cast out, and work your way on down through and uh, pick up a fish if there's one in there. The plunking, the slower water uh, couldn't drift, so they'd just throw out a heavy weight with the bait up on the line oh, a few inches, so it just kept it off the bottom. 
and you'd be waiting for a steelhead to come swimming by and take the bait. They had a little bell on their pole. <laughs> when the bell rang, you had a fish on. Mm-hmm. Well, they were lower river in the big river of Snoqualmie. And they were a really good uh, table for telling us when the fish were on their way. <clears throat> you could say, well, they hooked them in novelty. So two days they'll be here going into the tolt. And uh, you pretty well tell when the runs were coming from the plunkers down the river. When they caught a few fish, we knew there was a run coming. And uh, that's, an, that's an important part because they, <clears throat> they described the drift fishing could happen on like the smaller rivers, like the Tolt River and the Raging and things uh, like that. Uh, but the plunkers, it required a large body of slow moving water where the fish were slowly moving through it. And a stationary bait was put out for them to, tr- to attract them. And so that was all done in the larger rivers, correct? Yes. <clears throat> now, Dad, Dad was a professional steelheader. He had fished so long and he knew that fish. When they migrate up the river, <clears throat> they don't just get in the center of the river and here they come. They go from one side to the other. There's holes that they'll rest in. But half of the fishermen you see standing on the river fishing steelhead are fishing where they aren't. And dad's whole success was he only fished where they were. He knew where <laughs> they were. And, uh, oh, you'd be surprised, guys, that you stay in the same spot. And the fish wouldn't even come anywhere near them, you know. And a lot mm-hmm. of them were fishing beyond them. The fish might have only been 10 feet out, and they were casting out 40 feet, you know. So it was knowing where they'd lay. <clears throat> when you had a favorite hole, you knew right where the fish would be. So... Another thing about the plunking is that it was a much more social way of fishing because drift fishing, you're basically is individualistic. You're by yourself. You're out there drifting your spot. You really can't have people too close to you or you'll get lines tangled up and things like that. Uh, uh, You have to keep a little bit of distance between fishermen and stuff. And so it's kind of uh, more individualistic. You're kind of lonely. Plunking was entirely the opposite. They put their poles out. They had the bells at the end of the pole and they were waiting for their strike. And in the meantime, they would have big burn barrels going and uh, make quite the little social aspect of it. Isn't that correct? Yeah, the plunking track. They always had a pot of beans or something going on and coffee and they'd play cribbage a lot while they're waiting to catch a fish. But even though they would converse, play cards, and and do all sorts of things, you had to remain quiet enough to re- to hear the bell, right? <laughs> yeah, but when that pole would jerk up and down when you hooked one, and uh, <clears throat> I just didn't really have the patience for. I wanted to drift, and there was a what is the word etiquette etiquette. A uh, way of fishing the hole. You'd you come up if there was another fisherman there. You'd let him continue on down. You'd step in 
behind him and come on through the hole and then go on to another one. If But uh, you wouldn't just stand in one spot and block the hole. You know, you fished it. And uh, uh, nowadays, oh boy, it's territorial and there's nothing. Uh, the old sportsman way is gone. Yeah, it was more like golf. You kind of played by a set of rules. Yeah. <laughs> and when yeah. we had our, you mentioned the sportsman club. My parents were uh, <clears throat> originators in that. There was uh, charter members. I can remember most of them. Wilbur Platt and Oliver Mackey and the old mayor Brumbaugh. Johnny Aronica, Nick Luches, uh, Ted Schmidt that had the cafe. He wasn't much of a steelheader. When he did, he'd plunk. But we had him because of the cafe. We'd meet there for meetings. <clears throat> and then, <clears throat> pardon me, for our uh, contest every year for the largest fish, we'd have the weigh-in at the store there at the cafe. And then they'd mark it up on the board, what you caught and what it weighed. I'll never forget the season was coming to an end and about the biggest fish was a 12 pounder, which ain't much. And I caught a nice buck down Carnation Farm. It'd go 14, 16 pounds. And I had it in the pickup. I stopped the tavern. I seen dad was in there, so I showed him a fish. And I said, you want to see my new fish pole? Because you got a new pole on the fluger if you won. And he said, oh, yeah, it looks like you won. Well, well, Prost Direct, he said, uh, can I have some of that fish? We'd love to, my wife and I. I said, yeah, I got to weigh it in. And Well, <clears throat> a little while later, Prost was gone, and I thought, well, I'd better go weigh my fish in. And it went out, and there's only a half of one there. He took it and went home. <laughs> <laughs> and there, oh went my goodness. My, there went my fish pole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they so they had these, that was an important function of the, of the sportsman uh, uh, club is that they had this derby uh was it one derby for the entire season or did they have numerous uh <clears throat> for the entire numerous season. ones? But then it graduated on down, you know, you could have a tense fish uh, in weight and still get a prize. Mm -hmm. You know. But um our sportsman club, the thing that really put us on the map was the dinner. And it was all donated. And uh, we started out, I don't know, probably feeding 40, 50 people. And when we quit, it was up three, 400 people. And mm -hmm. it really got to be a chore. We'd rent the, what was it, the old Grange Hall? Grange Hall, yeah. And uh, completely fill that three times. Yeah, and I can I remember baked, that myself. Baked uh, fish, which is you nuts. Know, probably my least fondest way of cooking a fish but it was the only way to feed a lot of people mm -hmm. and they'd have the mm -hmm. coleslaw 
And that's where I come up with my relish. One year we'd mm-hmm. have real good, uh, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, tartar sauce. And uh, it was all based on the relish you could get. And so I started making that green tomato relish that really went good in that. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the whole reason. So we had a consistency that it was the same all the time. Yeah, but, I remember that well. Yeah, it was great. <clears throat> and, and when you're raising tomatoes in Western Washington, you need to find a use for green tomatoes because we really have enough sunshine to ripen them all up. So, hey, we need to take a break right for a moment and uh, hear a couple of messages. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk uh, with my dad about um, steelhead fishing and about the Sportsman Club of uh, Carnation, Washington. We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi, I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straitjacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back. Continue to discuss uh, steelhead fishing and the sportsman club with my uh, father, Dale Davidson, of, uh, uh, that happened in Carnation. We were talking about how the one of the big events that the sportsman club did was they, um, they put on a derby, which was uh, a competitive um, uh, fish derby where people could win a, a new fishing pole and reel and things. And then with some of the fish donated by a fisherman, they would put on this big uh, sportsman club um, dinner that actually grew to be really quite popular. I can actually remember that as a youngster myself in the Grange Hall. And uh, dad was saying that we got up to hundreds of people. And the sportsman club was pretty successful financially. They were able to buy a building once, right? Uh, dad, you want to talk about that? <clears throat> yeah, we bought the old... Uh... Shaker Church that was later Seventh-day Adventist Incarnation and I still got a church pew out of that. I think I sent it home with Diana but uh, that didn't uh, that didn't satisfy the members. They wanted a piece of property like on the river Mm -hmm. and so uh, we sold that and we bought a piece clear up the end of the county road on the Tote River, right at the end of the road, we bought this piece of property to get access to the river. And uh, if you drove up there, you could fish the whole tolls all the way down and nobody could keep you off the river because you accessed it through public access, not private property. And uh, later years when we, well, all of our members were dying off and the old charter and I guess so was the interest. Well, we dissolved the club and we give that property to the game department, Fish and Game. And it's still there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um, 
we didn't own anything other than that. But yeah, we'd, uh, you know, we'd put $2,500 in the bank after that during the banquet because uh, everything was free. We had no overhead other than rent in the hall. <laughs> uh, all profit. Mm-hmm. So we'd, and we'd give uh, money up to a lot of uh, other clubs and things that were trying to raise money because uh, we always had more than we needed. But it was that darn dinner they brought it all. And and the thing that uh, I'm just a I'm just a real young kid and and uh, with the sportsman club and so I can't remember too much about the goings on except that I can remember attending the dinners with you and seeing how busy all of you folks were putting it on. But um, kids do get impressions about things. One of the things that I remember about the sportsman club is I don't remember it being a club that was filled with nothing but um, good companionship of people getting along and, and uh, having fun. I don't ever remember there being any big skirmishes or any controversy associated with, with it much at all. No. <clears throat> the only exciting thing I can remember like that is we put a, a shooting range in one of the old chicken houses up where Tom and Violet Clark had uh, were renting. It was right above Bob Andrelli's. And we put a gun range inside the building where some of the wives could learn to shoot. And uh, if you knew Millie Brumball, they handed her a loaded gun and she shot three times before anybody could stop her through the ceiling, out the window, and, you know. (laughs) And then I'll go farther on that story. They'd go over to Blue Mountains hunting deer and elk, and they have a camp set up and everything. And Millie had to go with Art. And so... uh, He'd uh, set her up and he'd take off hunting and send her away. Well, she'd be lost most of the day, run into other hunters and find her way back. And she'd come back, it was really late. And she said, uh, well, Art, unload my gun. I'm going to go to bed. And he said, no need to, Millie. And she said, why not? Can't leave it loaded. He said, I never loaded it this morning. (laughs) <laughs> I ain't gonna send you out there with a loaded gun. <laughs> so she hunted all day with an empty gun. <laughs> I think it'd be appropriate at this time when we're talking so much about fishing. Is one of my favorite stories you tell that. And I don't know if this, I can't recall right offhand. I'm sorry about that. I can't recall if this was in uh, your uh, uh, in your uh, book. Uh, but um, it was a story about. Uh, uh, playing hooky and fishing on the uh, uh, and running into a certain individual on uh, that was also playing the hooky. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, I did. He, uh, <clears throat> I was in study hall uh, up the top floor of Told High School, sitting there wishing I was somewhere else. And I looked out and I see the old man's pickup parked up on the grade by the railroad bridge. And a couple of minutes later, I seen him come back to the truck and throw fish in the back and then leave again. Well, I could see one of my fish poles in, hanging in the truck. And it was just too much temptation. 
So I snuck out of school and took off over there and went fishing. And the first one I run into was uh, one of the teachers, and he had a wool tweed suit that he wore all the time. He had a pair of weight, hip waders on and uh, that suit. <laughs> he said, if uh, I didn't see you, you didn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> but I fixed him up with some bait, and he did catch a fish. Later in the day, he told me. And uh, I know he wanted to catch a fish so bad. It was pretty good. Uh, yeah, well, that was neat that you get. Uh, it, it was it was an avid uh, hobby of so many people uh, in the Valley. And I can remember myself actually going through times where it was it was hard to stop. To, I'd go out early in the morning and fish before work. And sometimes it's hard to stop. Oh. To get to work on time. It was very addictive. It was. The sportsman club, as I remember, Dwayne, was early 50s. Because the dinners were a big thing when Larry and I was in high school. Mm -hmm. 55 and 57. So I think it was about 51 when they started all that. The mm -hmm. club. And uh, we did uh, teaching the kids... Uh, so they could get their hunting license, gun uh, safety and whatnot. We were pretty active in that. And uh, I, I would like to see more, but the, the bunch that are out there fishing nowadays, they ain't sportsmen. They really mm -hmm. aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can uh, remember... I can remember taking gun safety classes at a gun range between Fall City and Carnation. And uh, it was well attended by a lot of my friends from school. And I can remember, you know, it's kind of, it kind of saddens to think about how much time have changed talking about sportsmen that so many guys that I went to school with fished, I can name, you know, like Bill Davis and others that, you know, are good friends that, uh, that we fished and, and hunted. And when Bob Luchas and others, and when duck season came by, it was extremely common to drive by the high school and see it filled with pickup trucks, with gun racks, oh, yeah. with, with guns and every one. And you think about that. Can you imagine the uproar that would bring today here now, uh, 40 years later, that at that time, Everybody had a everybody had a gun out in their car in the park in the school's parking lot, and there was no there's no violence like we see unfortunately today. And so it was uh, it was truly a uh, it was truly just a really different time in our in our society, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And that gun rack, Gary and I always spur the moment thing, and we decided we'd go up and fish at Thompson up. Uh, uh, in Canada, and I remember going through a customs. Uh, <laughs> you got two fish poles and seven guns. <laughs> you're telling me you're going fishing? <laughs> we go, well, the guns are just an ornament, they're in here all the time. <laughs> <laughs> they sealed them, you know, they take the bolt out or they'd crack it and put a tag through it. That, so we could go on in to Canada with them. Now, now I remember that this it was. You just didn't even think about it. 
there was a gun in there. No, and you know was what? Like, nobody would think of. of school shooting or anything like that. It just wasn't even thought of. Yeah. We did have one. A couple of seniors seen a couple of buck deer out there in the berry field. They had their guns in the car, so they went and surrounded the deer with three hunters. And Fritz Palermo took a shot at a buck and missed it, but he shot Perry Thomas right in the chest. Jeez. And uh, that was a big deal back then about guns on the school ground, but they didn't, it wasn't on the school grounds, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only incident I can ever remember of any accident with a gun. And yeah, everybody had them. <laughs> Hey, and uh, uh, we're nearing the end, but I wanted to comment that uh, I'm going to borrow a photograph from your book, Dead Man's Clothes, which my dad wrote that you can find on the Internet. If you just uh, um, if you just Google that Good Man's Clothes, it's a book that he uh, takes kind of a um, with some humor look at his time growing up in Carnation. So I hope people uh, check it out. And I'm going to borrow, if it's OK with you, Dad, a picture from that book. Uh, to do the Facebook post announcing this uh, uh, this episode that I'm doing with you of uh, my grandfather, your father, uh, Vern Davidson with a steel head that he, um, it's a wonderful picture that's uh, cherished by the family that actually made it to an article or the cover article or something like that. And one of the major sports, uh, like sports of field or field and stream or something like that, right? Yeah, but he had another one. I'll have to tell you quick. It was winter, naturally, and snow on the ground. And he had uh, his limit, three fish, and carrying them back to the pickup. And the sports writer was there. And so I'll lay him down there and let me take a picture. You stand behind there and get it all set up. And here come uh, Oliver Mackey with one fish. And the guy, the author said, well, just put it down there, make a better picture. Well, then when it come out, it was Vern Davidson with his limit of fish. Limit was three, and he had four fish in front of him. <laughs> and it made a national magazine. Oh, the old man was mad about that. <laughs> As he did obey the law. You know? <laughs> I mean, no. We didn't need to cheat. There was so damn many Davidsons we could have all the fish we ever wanted, you know. Yeah, and we did. And I can remember my grandfather having a smokehouse by uh, the place that was a not not a Traeger smoke a smoker that you'd find at Costco today. This was a constructed old-fashioned smokehouse that was very popular on farms that they would smoke hams and things like that. And my grandpa built this and. Uh, uh, and smoked many, many fish. Well, fish tend to be steelhead uh, tend to be kind of an oily fish, and those things can get pretty a lot of tar built on the inside of those. And I can remember one Christmas celebration that Grandpa was smoking fish, and my aunt Cora came in. Uh, I think she was somewhat inebriated, and we had a little trouble understanding <laughs> her, but she was trying to let us know that the smokehouse was on fire, and it was a complete. Unfortunately, it was a complete goner. It went up in flames, but 
it was about the size of an old fashioned outhouse. It was a rather large uh, dwelling that they would. Oh yeah, it was a dandy. And then yeah. after that fire, we piped the smoke in. We had a barrel stove alongside of it and just run the smoke into the smokehouse. But Dwayne, a picture I'd love to have was the work train when it was still the old steam locomotive. And the smokehouse was built on kind of questionable property where the Milwaukee Road and our, you know, it's only like 30 feet there to the tracks. And yeah. it was in the middle. And the uh, train stopped. It's out there running the engineer. Brakeman, they were emptying the smoke out. And he, it just does burn. We're collecting the rent. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> the train stopped there helping herself to smoke fish, you know. <laughs> I'm sure the railroad management didn't know about that. That was kind of a self-imposed <laughs> uh, rental agreement that they had with the local train crew. Well, Dad, we've reached the time limit. Hey, this is uh, it's been a lot of fun talking. This has been a heck of a lot of fun talking about uh, fishing with you and kind of a different era that existed at uh, Tolt uh, Carnation at the time. It's been a lot of fun. So thanks again for doing it. And uh, folks, tune back next week while we continue to explore the history of the Sopong Valley. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.